0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com give. You're listening to episode 283 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Our Lady of Zaytun. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. The Christian faith has a long history in Egypt. Around the year 1 BC, Joseph and Mary took the baby Jesus to Egypt to keep him from being killed by Herod the Great. Christianity came back to Egypt after Jesus' ministry. And St. Mark, the author of the Gospel, is credited with being its first patriarch. But in 1968, something strange began happening in Zaytun, a suburb of Cairo. Witnesses reported the Virgin Mary was appearing at a local church. She appeared more than 90 times. The apparitions involved dramatic displays of light, and these were even photographed. It's estimated more than a million people saw the apparitions, making them the most witnessed Marian apparitions in world history. Where is Zaytun? What was the Virgin Mary reported to do there? And were these genuine apparitions? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, what do we want to say before we begin? Well, I want to say a thank you to uh, Ibrahim Yusuf Khater of
1: Cairo, um he is an egyptian man who uh for some time has done some sponsoring of mysterious world he just wanted to support it and he didn't ask for a you know a business to be mentioned on the show or anything like that he just wanted he's just a fan of the show and just wanted to support it and he suggested that we do this episode which is one that i've been meaning to do for a long time anyway so special thanks to Ibrahim Youssef Hater
0: So we've done a lot of mysteries set in Egypt on Mysterious World, but most of them have been set in ancient times. This is the first we've done in Egypt that's set after the time of Christ. What should we know about the history of Christianity in Egypt? It's very old.
1: uh, As you said in the introduction, the Holy Family visited Egypt to avoid the slaughter of the innocents. Judaism has an even older history than Christianity in Egypt, going all the way back to the book of Genesis when the patriarchs visited Egypt. Then the whole people of Israel went to Egypt in an event known as the Isodus, and several hundred years later, they came back in the event known as the Exodus, which we talked about in episode 166, which was specifically on the Exodus, and we'll also talk about the date of the Exodus in a future episode. We also recently mentioned in episode 241 on mummies how the patriarch Jacob, also known as Israel himself... And the Patriarch Joseph were mummified after their deaths. Later, uh, Jewish people had a lot of dealings with Egypt because it was a major superpower that was right next door. Uh, When Alexander the Great conquered Egypt in the 300s BC, he set up the city of Alexandria and named it after himself. It became the capital of the Greek or Ptolemaic pharaohs and a large Jewish community formed in Alexandria. The beginnings of the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament were made there, uh, reportedly for the famous library of Alexandria. At least one book of the Bible, the Book of Wisdom, was likely written in Alexandria, and the Jewish philosopher Philo lived there in the 1st century B.C. and the 1st century A.D., Starting in the second century BC and for about 300 years afterwards, there was also a second Jewish temple, besides the one in Jerusalem, that was operating in Leontopolis in the, delta of the, uh, in the delta of the Nile River in Egypt. So all the Jewish activity in Egypt in the time leading up to Christ made Egypt a good place for evangelization. And who's credited with evangelizing Egypt? According to tradition, St. Mark, the companion of Paul and Peter and the author of the gospel, brought the message of Christianity to Egypt, and he's regarded as the first archbishop of Alexandria. Egypt became a major center of Christian activity in the early church, and it gave us famous early Christian figures such as Clement of Alexandria, Origen, St. Athanasius, and St. Anthony in the Desert Fathers, as well as Patriarch Cyril of Alexandria, who is a doctor of the Church in the Catholic Church. It was Christianity that finally ended Egyptian paganism. When the Greeks conquered Egypt under Alexander, they didn't stop the worship of the Egyptian gods. Instead, they integrated with it. But the message of Jesus finally displaced the Egyptian pantheon, and by the A.D. 300s, most Egyptians were Christians. Unfortunately, in 641 A.D., Arab Muslims conquered Egypt, and Christians in Egypt have been subject to persecution, forced conversion, and heavy taxes since then. But Egyptian Christians have kept the faith, and the Christian community that is of Egyptian origin is known as the Coptic community. They are not Arabs, and they use the liturgical language Coptic, which is a direct descendant of the ancient Egyptian language, though with influences from Greek. Uh, For example, after buying a Coptic dictionary a number of years ago, I noticed that the Coptic word for governor is based on the Greek word for governor, hegemonous. Uh, but its basis, the basis of the Coptic language, is ancient Egyptian. And you can still hear lots of ancient Egyptian words in Coptic. For example, the Coptic word for king, which is derived from the same root as pharaoh, is pronounced eporo. And you can hear how eporo sounds like pharaoh. They also, the Coptic people, maintain their own traditions. For example, they uh, keep their own liturgical calendar, which is based on the ancient Egyptian calendar. It has 12 months of 30 days each, plus a special five-day month at the end of the year. And that's like the ancient Egyptian calendar. The years of the calendar are also counted from the year 284, which was the year that the Roman Emperor Diocletian took office and began martyring Christians. So the current year, A.D. or Anno Domini, or the year of the Lord, 2023, on the Gregorian calendar, corresponds to A.M. or Anno Martyrum, or the year of the martyrs, 1739, on the Coptic calendar. You will hear some Coptic dates in this episode. In any event, after the Arab conquest, the majority of Egyptians were still Christians, Uh, though they ceased being the majority by the 1300s. Today, around 15% of Egyptians are still Coptic Christians. Most Copts are Oriental Orthodox, though there is a small Catholic Coptic church, which is one of the Eastern Catholic churches.
0: The term Oriental means Eastern. The Orient is the East. So if most Copts are Oriental Orthodox, does that mean that they are Eastern Orthodox? Uh, surprisingly,
1: no. The Eastern Orthodox communion of Christians and the Catholic Church separated basically in the 11th century, and the Oriental Orthodox communion is older than that. In that case, the separation goes back to the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451. The dispute at the time had to do with how to properly express the relationship between Christ's divinity and his humanity. The way the supporters of Chalcedon expressed it was to say that Christ has two natures that are united together, a divine nature and a human nature. They were particularly concerned to avoid an error that was attributed to the patriarch of Constantinople, a man named Nestorius, who was perceived as dividing Christ into two persons, one divine and one human, though Nestorius himself actually didn't believe that, and he died in good standing with the church. The Chalcedonian fathers were also concerned to reject what they believed was an error attributed to Nestorius's opponent, Eutyches, who was perceived as teaching that Christ had only one nature alone that was a fusion of the divine and human, or that even caused the human to be lost in the divine. The Greek word for alone or only is monos, and the Greek word for nature is fusis, So, supporters of Eutyches came to be known as monophysites after the idea that Christ had one divine human nature alone. But not everyone preferred the language that the Council of Chalcedon proposed. The Oriental Orthodox were concerned that the way Chalcedon expressed things could be perceived as splitting Christ in two. Unfortunately, they were then accused of being monophysites and supporters of Eutyches, though they actually condemn Eutyches. And they also reject the term monophysite. Uh, They describe their own position as meaphysitism, from the Greek word mea, meaning one. The idea being that Christ has one nature that unites the divine and human without either being confused with the other, or without eliminating the other. The good news is that it has subsequently been realized that despite the historical division following Chalcedon, we really aren't in disagreement here. We simply use different language to express the unity and the distinction of the divine and the human in Christ, and the leaders of our churches have subsequently signed a joint Have subsequently signed joint confessions of faith in Christ. For example, in 1973, the Catholic Pope Paul VI and the Coptic Pope Shenouda III signed a common declaration that dealt with the
0: topic. In it, they declared We confess that our Lord and God and Savior and King of us all, Jesus Christ, is perfect God with respect to his divinity, perfect man with respect to his humanity. In him, his divinity is united with his humanity. In a real perfect union, without mingling, without commixtion, without confusion, without alteration, without division, without separation. His divinity did not separate from his humanity for an instant, not for the twinkling of an eye. He who is God eternal and invisible became visible in the flesh and took upon himself the form of a servant. In him are preserved all the properties of the divinity and all the properties of the humanity together in a real, perfect, indivisible, and inseparable union. So the good news is that even though we have
1: historically used different language to express our faith in Jesus, we agree on the substance, and this, is, this issue has basically been put to rest. And the Catholic Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Assyrian Church of the East are all working towards restoring unity. We share the same faith, we all share apostolic succession, and we all share the seven sacraments. As a sign of fraternity, in 1968, the Catholic Pope, Paul VI, returned some relics of St. Mark to the Coptic Church. They had been stolen in AD 828 by a couple of merchants of Venice. So, yes, actual merchants of Venice— uh, reportedly, they stole them to keep them safe from the Islamic governor in Alexandria, and they were then kept in the Basilica of St. Mark in Venice. But to commemorate the 1900th anniversary of St. Mark's martyrdom, Pope Paul VI returned some of them to the Coptic Pope, Kyrillos VI, in 1968, which was considered an important event in Egypt. Incidentally, in case the name Carillos sounds familiar, it's the English equivalent of Cyril. So you may sometimes see Pope Carillos referred to as Pope Cyril.
0: You referred to the leader of the Coptic Church in 1968 as Pope the IV and its leader in 1973 as Pope Shenouda Third. That may be unfamiliar to some listeners who only think of the Bishop of Rome as Pope. So how does the title Pope work?
1: The title Pope comes from the word Papa, which means father. And in the early centuries, it was used for many Christian leaders. In the form Pope, it is still used for the Bishop of Rome and for the Patriarch of Alexandria, so they are referred to, both of them, as popes, the Coptic Pope and the Catholic Pope. Incidentally, we mentioned uh, the Coptic Pope in episode 106, part 2 of our discussion of St. Thomas Aquinas and the occult, because whenever there's a vacancy in the office, the Coptic Church uses a form of sortilage to select a new pope. Uh, this is based on the practice of the apostles in Acts 1 when they replaced Judas. Uh, the cop, it, the apostles at that time named two good candidates to replace Judas and then consulted God about which one he wanted by drawing lots. That practice of drawing lots to determine God's will is known as sortilege or cleromancy, and it isn't something you should do all the time because God hasn't promised to give an answer to us in just any situation by that means, so don't try to use it in your ordinary life. But, based on the apostolic precedent, it's used to select the new Coptic Pope. Uh, They determine three good candidates, they put their names on slips of paper in a chalice, which is put on the altar, and then they say the Divine Liturgy, or Mass, and select the name of the new Pope. The current Pope is His Holiness Tawadros
0: II. Now that we have some background in Egyptianist Christianity, let's talk about the apparition of Our Lady of Zaytun. When did it begin? In 1968,
1: and to understand what was going on in Egypt, we need to go back a year in time to 1967. In June of 1967, an event took place known as the Six-Day War because that's how long it lasted. It was fought between Israel and several other states, which included Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. In his biography of Pope Cyrilos, A Silent Patriarch, Daniel Fanous writes,
0: In response to Egypt secretly mobilizing forces along the border, Israel launched a preemptive strike against the Egyptian airfields. Within moments, the greater part of the Egyptian air force was destroyed. Simultaneously, an Israeli ground offensive at the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula caught the Egyptian army by surprise, inflicting heavy losses and mass confusion fewer than a 1,000 Israeli soldiers were killed, compared to over 20,000 of the Arab forces. In just five days, the air force was decimated, tens of thousands killed, the Sinai Peninsula seized, intangible assets obliterated, and national pride and regional credibility abrogated. Egyptian President Abdel Nasser's regime was discredited, and his policies devalued. Unable to bear the seismic failure and embarrassment, the president, in a public broadcast on June 9th, stepped down. But the people of Egypt demanded
1: that he retract his resignation, and Pope Kyrillus helped convince him to remain in office. Unfortunately, the defeat in the Six-Day War caused problems for the
0: Coptic community. Fanous writes, The Copts suffered on two fronts in the fallout of the war. Standing alongside their Muslim brethren, they too had lost fathers, husbands, and sons. But that did little to silence the accusations of Christian espionage. The Coptic church was, after all, a member of the World Council of Churches, which happened to support the founding of Israel. At the same time, religious sentiments were slowly resurrected from the ashes. Many felt the war was a punishment for a lack of faith, and in Egypt, the reemergence of faith could, in an instant, radicalize and spark sectarian violence. Tensions swiftly intensified. Nasser was compelled to publicly praise the bravery and patriotism of Coptic soldiers to soften somewhat the increasing accusations from the Muslim Brotherhood. So, in 1967, Egypt was suffering, and the Coptic people were particularly
1: vulnerable. But then, on the night of Tuesday, April 2nd, 1968, something strange happened. The story begins at a municipal garage owned by the Public Transportation Authority, uh, the garage was on uh, Taman Bay Street in Zaytun, a suburb of the capital Cairo. Across the street from the garage is the Church of the Virgin Mary, a Coptic parish. The church had been dedicated in 1925, so it was about 43 years old. It had been built by a man named Tafik named Khalil Ibrahim. And it's reported that the Virgin Mary had appeared to him and said that she would appear in 40 years, at the church he built in memory of her. The event in 1968 began at 8.30 a.m., and the first person to notice something was happening was the night watchman of the garage, a man named Abdul Aziz Ali. He saw a brightly lit object above the dome of the church and shouted, Light over the dome! This caused three of the mechanics at the garage to become involved, their names were Farouk Mohammed Atwa, Hussein Awad, and Yakut Ali. All three of them happened to be Muslims, according to an account published in Francis Johnson's booklet
0: Zaytun (1968 to 1971). Rush hour was over, and the only sign of activity in the gathering dusk was a solitary car and several women pedestrians in the lamplit street. Suddenly, there was an unexpected movement on the middle dome of the church which attracted the attention of the women. Two of the workmen by the garage gate put down their mugs of tea and stared up in mute disbelief at what seemed to be a white lady kneeling beside the cross at the top of the dome. There was a flurry of agitated whispering shot through with a rising tremor of alarm. One of the workmen, Baruch Mohammed Atwa, a Muslim, pointed up with a bandaged finger which he was due to have amputated next day as a result of gangrene, and cried out with compelling urgency, believing it was a young girl about to commit suicide. Lady, don't jump! Don't jump! Impelled by a sense of desperation, he dashed off to call the fire brigade and the rescue squad, while several of his companions ran across the street to summon a priest, a Father Constantine Musa.
1: Actually, according to one of the workmen, they first summoned the church doorkeeper. In Farouk's own words,
0: We saw a figure dressed in white on top of the dome of the church. I thought she was going to commit suicide and shouted to her to be careful. My friend called the police and I woke up the doorkeeper. He comes out and looks and cries, It is the virgin! and runs to call the priest. The parish priest, Father Constantine
1: Musa, described his experience.
0: I was at home only steps from the church when Ibrahim, the doorkeeper, came in very distressed saying, St. Mary has appeared on the dome. I went myself and saw an illuminated half-body of St. Mary. Some of the bus depot workers directed spotlights in her direction, but she illuminated more. Back to Johnston's account. At that moment, the lady rose to her feet, revealing herself as a luminous being dressed in shimmering robes of light. One of the women below cried out with electrifying comprehension, Setena Mariam, Our Lady Mary. Hardly had the cry escaped her lips when a flight of glowing white doves seemed to appear from nowhere and hover round the apparition. After several moments, the extraordinary tableau faded into the darkened sky, leaving the spectators stupefied and speechless.
1: According to a book that the Coptic Patriarchate commissioned to commemorate the
0: 50th anniversary of the apparition in 2018, the policemen arrived quickly and a crowd of passers by began to gather. As the crowd gathered, the girl's appearance started to change. The scene that was revealed to the crowd showed a beautiful girl surrounded by a white heavenly light, clothed in a white robe, and holding branches of olive tree in her hand. Suddenly, a swarm of pure white doves flew over her head. It was at this moment that they all realized that this scene was of spiritual and heavenly origin. In his book, A Silent Patriarch, Daniel Fanus writes, A crowd began to gather. The police arrived and attempted to disperse them, stating that the so-called apparition was merely an illusion caused by the reflection of the adjacent streetlights. They duly proceeded to break the offending lights, but the apparition only became more intense. One of
1: the people who investigated the apparition was an American professor of anthropology at the American University of Cairo. Her name was Cynthia Nelson, and she reports...
2: According to those I later interviewed, who were present during those first hours and days, the police did arrive on the scene, and the Ma'amur, police chief, attempted to disperse the crowds, saying that the so-called apparition was but the reflection of the lights from the street lamps, and commenced to break the lights. The light of the dome remained, and the vision of the Virgin became even clearer. The Ma'amur became frightened and said that he wanted nothing more to do with this while others came closer to be sure of what they saw. Thus reported a Coptic woman in her early fifties, who witnessed the apparition along with her two teenage daughters.
1: And according
0: to the account in the Coptic Patriarchate's book, In order to be certain beyond any doubt, they aimed lights at the luminous image, but it only increased in brightness and clarity. Then they broke the streetlights located close to the church, but the luminous image did not disappear. Finally, they turned off the lights in the whole area, but the girl in her heavenly splendor and her luminous robe only appeared more clearly, and she began moving in a circle of light that radiated from her body onto all of her surroundings. It became clear to everyone that the girl in front of them was undoubtedly the Virgin St. Mary. The crowd erupted in thunderous applause with shouts and cheers of, She is the Virgin! She is the Mother of Light! Reaching to the sky! Then the crowds started to sing, chant, and pray throughout the night until the next morning.
1: Different details emerged from knitting together these different accounts, but the fundamental substance of the event was confirmed by multiple witnesses upon later investigation, so we have a good sense of the overall shape of what happened. Incidentally, according to a local tradition, Zaytun was one of the places that the Holy Family visited during their time in Egypt, and this was popularly regarded as part of why she appeared there. Also, a very interesting thing was reported the next day. you recall that one of the transit workmen, Farouk Mohammed Atwa, had pointed at the apparition with his finger that was bandaged because it was going to be
0: amputated the next day because of gangrene. Well, according to Johnston, Next morning, when Farouk Atwa arrived at the hospital for his operation, the surgeon was astonished to find the finger completely healed. This was the first known miracle to have occurred at Zaytun. And I've seen it confirmed in
1: other sources that Atwa's finger was healed. Following these events, people, and especially cops, started to wait at the church to see if any additional apparitions would occur. A week later, on Tuesday, April 9th, one did. And that wasn't the only one. On his blog, Parasociology, author Eric Willett writes,
0: Among the surprises I had researching this case is that there is no complete list of apparitions. The Coptic Church investigation identified 27 apparitions during the period of 2 April 1968 to 4 May 1968, or just over a month, with a number of nights having more than one apparition occurring. Other sources noted that there was a decline in the number of apparitions throughout 1968 to one or two a week. The frequency went down to once a month by early 1970, according to Johnston. However, based on Zaki's research, between 21 August 1969 and 11 June 1971, there were 17 apparitions. According to Johnston, the last apparition occurred on 29 May 1971.
1: The apparitions thus stretched from the beginning of April 1968 to May or June 1971, a period of basically three years and two months. All told, Willette reckons that there were around 94 apparitions, with most of them occurring in 1968. In fact, Willette produced a chart graphing when the apparitions occurred and the estimated size of the crowd that was waiting to see them. What he found was that, although the lines don't match exactly, the most apparitions occurred when the crowds were the largest, which you could interpret as God rewarding the faith of the people that were showing up to witness them. How many people were coming
0: to wait for the apparitions?
1: It varied over time, but there could be a lot of people in attendance. Uh, There are pictures of absolutely very large crowds, uh, the accounts which we have indicated that the area around the church was filled up for blocks with people, and it could take hours to get close to the church. I even have one report of a Muslim clergyman physically carrying a Christian doctor to help him get close, since he was having trouble walking with the pressure of the crowd. Here's Father Johanna Yasa, who is a priest at Saint Mary's Church in Saetune today as he introduces a clip with some motion video from the time, so you can get a sense of what the crowd was like if you're watching the video version of the podcast.
3: If only you were there to hear tens of thousands coming from different places, groups, and different religions were all raising their voices in songs of praise.
0: Well, writes, there were only a few witnesses the first day as it was a completely unexpected event. It eventually grew to a very large gathering. Nil interviewed a witness stating that there were about 100 people on the night of 13 April 1968. Nelson estimated that there was between 1,000 and 1,500 people on 15 April 1968. After that, the phenomenon was discussed for the first time in the mainstream press, through the 23rd April 1968 article in the Arabic language newspaper Watani, the crowd grew significantly. The Bishop Athanasius estimated that there were 100,000 people on the night of 29 30 April. It finally reached an estimated 250,000 nightly onlookers after a few weeks, according to Johnston. By the end of 1968, it was estimated that the crowd was down to 10,000 people nightly. By June 1971, there were only a handful of people according to Zaki. It should be noted that it is notoriously difficult to estimate properly the size of a crowd, especially at night, and the higher figure might have been overestimated. However, this provides a good illustration that the phenomenon was a very public event.
1: And it was a very public event. By some estimates, over a million people witnessed the apparitions. Even if that number is overestimated on the high side, it's still true that a very, very large number of people saw the apparitions, as is evident from the photos of the crowds that attended.
0: What were the apparitions like? What kind of phenomena did people experience at them? Eric Willett surveyed a bunch of different sources. I've read many
1: of them, too. And on Willette's parasociology blog, he provides a good summary of what they say, so we'll be using his summary of the sources as a basis for describing what people experienced. Basically, Willette says,
0: There were six main qualitative aspects that can be identified about the Zaytun events. A. The so-called light birds. B. The smell of incense. C. The clouds. D phosphorescent-like luminosity, E, the scintillating lights or stars, and F, the main luminescent object, that is, the apparition.
1: So we'll go through each of these six categories and provide more detail on what people experienced.
0: The first of the categories was the so-called birds made of light. What should we know here? One
1: of the bishops that Pope Carrillos, uh tasked with looking into Zaytun was Bishop Gregorius, who was Bishop of Scientific Research and Coptic Culture. And I, I love how they have a Bishop of Scientific Research. I think that's awesome. Um, I found a clip of him describing the so-called birds, and here's what he had to say. The late Bishop Gregorios, during a private interview, told of
4: doves the size of angels that would appear and disappear over the church. Before they disappeared, they dispersed like cotton. Bishop Gregorios saw many doves at many different times over the church. Sometimes there were seven, sometimes there were twelve, and they were in a formation.
1: Meanwhile, summarizing multiple sources, Willette writes,
0: Many witnesses reported that there were luminous objects that traveled through the sky of Zetun, which were at first construed as birds, but were clearly not birds. Their actual nature remains unknown to this day. They were described as follows. Another phenomenon witnessed by the spectators is the appearance of bird-like creatures before, during, and after the apparitions, and sometimes on nights when there is no apparition at all. These creatures in some ways resemble doves. They are larger than doves. They are larger even than pigeons. Whence they come or whither they go, no one can determine. It is known, says the keeper of the Cairo Zoo, that pigeons do not fly at night. But these can hardly be any kind of natural bird. First of all, they fly much too rapidly. They fly without ever moving their wings. Only one spectator interviewed thought he saw one bird flap its wings they seem to glide before, into, and around the apparitions. They never come to rest on the roof or trees, and on some occasions have been seen to disintegrate in the sky like wisps of cloud. Varying in number on different nights, they have appeared singly in twos, threes, and even larger groups. Always in some kind of formation, the creatures fly in the form of a triangle, sometimes in the formation of a cross. Once, twelve of them flew six abreast in two rows not only are these birds spotless white, they themselves emit light. They are like electrically illuminated birds which can be seen both in the brilliant light of the apparition and in the darkness of the sky above the apparition. They disappear as mysteriously as they appear and without sound of any kind. Another description is from Bishop Gregorius on the apparitions that took place between 27 April and 15 May 1968. Before the apparitions took place, some birds that look like pigeons, I don't know what they are, appear in different formations. Sometimes two appear on the dome, just as if they had come out of it. However, the dome is closed. The windows do not open. They might be seen flying eastward, then wheeling about and flying to the west, and while one watches them, they suddenly disappear. And the fact that the windows of the dome do not open,
1: they are sealed shot is important because it means that the birds of light could not be released from within the dome. That's also something you could tell by examining the inside of the church, because the dome is 50 feet above the floor and there is no structure under it that you could stand on. You'd have to put up scaffolding or big ladders to get up there, and that would have been obvious if anybody had tried that, apart from the fact the windows don't open. Two of the phenomena that were described as accompanying the apparition were the smell of
0: incense and clouds around the church. According to Ouellette, Palmer reported that one should perhaps include as lights the mysterious clouds that are sometimes seen to hover high above the church even when the rest of the sky is cloudless. On one night, Bishop Gregorius stated, there poured from the sealed stained glass windows of the high dome such clouds of incense that it would take millions of censers to produce a like quantity. The incense clouds settled over the throng, standing around the church. So these clouds were seen above
1: the roof of the church, near the dome, but they couldn't have come out of the dome because its windows are sealed shut and don't open. Also, as we noted, you'd need scaffolding to get up there.
0: Bayliss adds a few more details in noting that he, Bishop Gregorius, Describes the appearance of clouds of deep reddish incense which billowed in huge quantities. It rose to a height of 30 to 60 feet and was clearly visible above and around the church against the colorless sky. Author Pearl Zackey described that sometimes clouds like a thick fog would roll in towards the church as if they were being channeled down the streets in all directions to completely cover the church. They seemed to absorb the incense and its fragrance and carry it to the crowd of people and spread it over them like a canopy. The sky above would turn a deep reddish purple. She also added that it was a pleasant
1: fragrance. So according to Pearl Zaki, the clouds were sometimes
0: seen coming from the streets and gathering around the church. Michael Nill interviewed Father Boutros, the parish priest of Zaytun, in nineteen seventy eight. He noted that there was at various occasions clouds accompanied with thunder and a smell of incense. Finally, in an interview in 1980, a witness, Mona McHale, told Bayless that other times we used to see clouds of incense. First, you would see a type of white cloud and it would cover all the church, all the area surrounding the church from above. I never smelled anything like it in all my life. It was a very, very beautiful odor. The cloud remained for 10 or 15 minutes and disappeared. So the clouds did not remain very long, just 10 to 15 minutes and
1: then they dissipate. The witnesses also reported displays of a kind of diffuse light that didn't take a particular shape, but that did illuminate the church.
0: Another common qualitative description was some sort of glowing aura or phosphorescent-like luminosity in the sky and around the church. Palmer reported that the large dome atop the church is sometimes illuminated by the heavenly lights, and on one occasion, as described by Bishop Samuel, the light which poured out from beneath one of the smaller domes gradually covered the entire church in light. Michel Nil, from his 1978 interviews, was told by Ragai Lewis that he saw the church illuminated from above as if it was from a fluorescent light, while Victor Fakhry described the same phenomenon as a phosphorus light on the church's wall in dome. As well, witness Sammy Gubron described a very strong light as if it was a million of watts, emanating from the church and lighting up the entire neighborhood. In addition to the diffuse glow, light also sometimes
1: appeared as small points, which were described by witnesses as sparkles and stars. It also reportedly sometimes looked like a flame.
0: The main apparition was oftentimes preceded by sparkling lights. As Palmer noted, the lights have been described by spectators as a circle of bright spotlights on one occasion as falling stars on another occasion, and even as a shower of diamonds of light swirling in the path of Our Lady's movements. A brilliant crown all of lights has been seen over the figure of Our Lady, giving her a majestic and glorious appearance. Pearl Zaki witnessed a similar phenomenon as she wrote that, On my fifth night, at about 4.15 a.m., I saw four yellow flashes or flames covering the front of the church. Following this, about 4.30, the Virgin Mary appeared full figure. She added in a different text, again, I saw a flash of yellowish-orange light shaped like a big flame and covering the whole front of the church and lasting about five seconds. It was repeated twice, four times in all. Hilda Gubron told Michel Nil in 1978 that at the time of the apparitions, there were stars and pigeons associated with the apparitions. Anzi Morid told Bayliss in a 1981 interview that he saw sparkling lights prior to the apparition in April 1968.
1: Finally, there was the apparition
0: itself, the
1: figure of the woman that was interpreted as the Virgin Mary. We have many eyewitness accounts of what people saw, and I was able to find a number of them on video.
4: Here is what Bishop Marcos had to say. Just behind the church in front of the wall of the church, I think, and not more than 40 or 50 meters, approximately at midnight. I have seen the vision, complete, very nice, very clear. I saw the complete face, complete body, and her hands waving to bless the people. And everyone could see that she concentrated her eyes on them exactly. Notice that Bishop Marcos indicates that he
1: and others could see the Virgin's eyes, which is a rather small detail. Now, here is what Father Johanna Yasa, now one of the priests at St.
3: Mary's in Zaytun, had to say. A few days later, while I was standing with my friend Mukhtar
5: Fikri
3: from the Faculty of Engineering, We saw the Virgin Mary surrounded by a stunning orange light.
5: We saw her many times at the Northeastern Dome. She appeared
3: in many different phenomenal forms. Once she was standing in her full body, blessing the people. She was moving from one dome to another, then going towards the cross. Here is what the evangelical Protestant
1: theologian Otto Minardis, who got his PhD at Harvard University, had to say.
4: Well, it occurred during uh, the first days of April that thousands and ten thousands of people, both Muslims and Christians alike, assembled in front of the Church of the Holy Virgin to see the apparition of the Virgin Mary as she appeared there on the dome. The days later, large numbers of people, both Muslims and Christians of the various denominations, assembled there and witnessed the apparition in various forms. I myself saw it numerous times with friends in my parish, with university students, and... uh, Yes, there's to be no doubt about it. And
1: finally, here is what Dr. Hyri Malek, a physician, reports.
5: I was standing over there near the fence and holding that iron fence as 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 strong as I could because of the pressure of the crowd. And it was about 8:13 in the evening. And I saw a light coming out from the south this dome which is the southwest dome and the light began to increase uh, gradually and then suddenly the holy mother was standing in front of the dome she stood there for uh, about 15 minutes and then she began to walk And she stood in front of that cross, and she knelt and stood up again. And then she walked to the northern side of the church, just above the area where I was standing. And she looked at at, at the crowd, and she blessed them, and she smiled. And I can say that I saw her teeth when she smiled.
1: Dr. Hyre says that he saw the Virgin standing, walking, kneeling, and then standing up again and walking, which is purposeful behavior. He also says that he could see Mary's teeth, which is a very fine detail. Summarizing different sources, Eric Willett says,
0: One obvious aspect about the apparitions is that there was a fairly wide variety of descriptions and behaviors reported by the witnesses. The apparitions seem to have all occurred near the church but not necessarily at the exact same spot. As previously noted, the first one was seen on the roof near the base of the dome. It was also seen in the courtyard between trees, while in other occasions, it was seen in midair above the dome. It's significant that the apparition
1: was not confined to a single spot. The apparition was seen on the roof of the church, on the ground in the courtyard, and floating in the air above the church. That means that whatever the explanation was, it needs to be able to account for all three of these locations. And the public authorities took steps to try to rule out a hoax. You'll recall that on the first night, they broke nearby streetlights to rule out those as a source of the light.
0: Well? It is interesting to note that after a number of days of apparitions, the public utilities cut the power in the neighborhood, at first to deflect a hoax, and then to help having a better view. As well, surrounding trees were cut on the third night so people could see better. The most common colors were blue and white, but some noted also green and pink and others saw a reddish light. These are important elements to define the nature of the apparition, as the traditional colors associated with Marian devotion are blue and white, but also red, although more common in older and eastern iconography. Several witnesses underlined that apparition disappeared as if turning off slowly the dimmer of a lamp, while in other situations it rose in the sky to disappear. On some occasions it was perceived as if the wind was blowing through it and that her veil was moving in the wind, while it appeared to be flat and only two-dimensional on another occasion. At times the apparition was motionless and described as statue-like, but it appeared that it was moving more often than not, but as if floating without using its feet. It was making gestures with her head and her hands in particular.
1: These gestures were commonly understood by witnesses as the Virgin Mary blessing the people.
0: Many claimed to be able to distinguish a face, eyes, and mouth, and even resembling representations seen in religious icons. Yet others noted that there was a light, but they could not distinguish anything particular. As one would expect, It is normal to have variations in descriptions provided by eyewitnesses, but in general, it tends to be relatively consistent. This certainly adds some degree of confidence about the common and ongoing source of the event. So that's a general
1: summary gathered from multiple sources of what the witnesses experienced during the apparitions. The American anthropology professor Cynthia Nelson learned about the apparitions in mid-April, about two weeks after the first apparition, and she attended the events several times. She describes what she saw.
2: When I looked to where the crowds were pointing, I too thought I saw a light through the branches of the trees. And as I tried to picture a nun-like figure in those branches, I could trace the outline of a figure. But as I thought to myself that this is just an illusion of the light reflecting through the branches, the image of the nun would leave my field of vision still there was no doubt in my mind that there was a light and that if i looked for the image it would come into focus i immediately explained this perceptual experience as an illusion caused by reflected light but the source of the light was a mystery for the street lights had been disconnected all around the church for several days and within another week all the trees around the church would be cut
1: Of course, with all this going on, the apparitions were a major news story. They were being reported extensively in the Arabic-language press, both newspapers and magazines, particularly in Egypt. They were even being reported in, in newspapers around the world, including the New York Times and the British Telegraph. Locally, the crowds for the apparitions were growing and they reportedly topped out at an estimated 250,000 people present for a single apparition. Some of the apparitions lasted just a few minutes, but one reportedly lasted for two hours and 15 minutes, which happened to be on the day that they cut the power in the neighborhood. Father Johanna reports,
3: Some people said, this may be the result of light reflections, which is why they cut off the electricity from the whole area at dawn on April 30th,
5: 1968.
3: On that day, the apparition lasted for two hours and 15 minutes. Even before that, Pope
1: the uh, VI had quickly appointed a commission to study the apparitions as soon as they began to be reported, which is the same thing that would be done in the Catholic Church. When an apparition is reported and needs to be investigated, the local bishop is tasked with doing so, and he typically appoints a commission of experts to research it and deliver their findings to him, after which he makes a decision based on their research. We talked about that in episode 84 on private revelations, and you can go back and listen to that if you'd like more information about how private revelations work in the Catholic Church. Pope Carillus appointed three archpriests known in the Coptic Church as hegumens, and yes, the word hegumen is related to the Greek term for governor, meaning that they had supervisory duties over other priests. These three were the director of the Papal Cabinet, the secretary of the Papal Committee for, church affi- for Church's Affairs, and the secretary of His Holiness Pope Carillos. so they were very trusted and respected men. They came back with positive findings, which we'll quote later, and on Saturday, May 4th, 1968, the Patriarchate held a press conference that was attended by more than a 150 reporters. Overseeing the press conference were four bishops, Bishop Athanasius of Suef, Bishop Abraham of Fayum, Bishop Samuel, the General Bishop of Social Services, and Bishop Gregorius, Bishop of Scientific Research and Coptic Culture. Bishop Athanasius read and translated the Statement of the Patriarchate, which we present here in full, including dates on the Coptic calendar.
0: Since the evening of Tuesday, April 2nd, 1968 AD, which coincides with Baram Hat 24, 1684 AM, the apparition of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of Light, continuously occurred in the Coptic Orthodox Church after her name on Tomanbe Street at Zaytun District in Cairo. This apparition occurred on many different nights and was not yet finished. It happened in different forms, sometimes with the whole body sometimes with the upper half surrounded by a halo of light, sometimes from the windows of the domes on the church top, and other times outside the domes. She used to move and walk above the dome and bow in front of the upper cross, which would be illuminated with a bright light. She used to face the viewers and bless them with her hands and with gestures of her holy head. Sometimes she appeared in the form of a body of a bright cloud or in the form of light preceded by the emergence of spiritual forms such as high-speed doves. The apparition would continue for a long period of time, which sometimes reached up to two hours and 15 minutes, as on the dawn of Tuesday, April 30th, 1968 AD, which coincides with Baramuda 22, 1684 AM. Her complete glowing figure lasted from 2.45 AM to 5 AM. This apparition was witnessed by many thousands of people of different religions, faiths, denominations, and foreigners, clergy, scientists, professionals, and other groups, who affirmed certainly that they had seen her. The large numbers agreed in describing every scene in its form, location, and time with unanimous testimony, which makes the apparition of the Lady of the Virgin, the Mother of Light, in this region, a distinct apparition in its character, elevating it above the need for a statement or confirmation. This apparition was accompanied by two important matters. The first was reviving the spirit of faith in God, the other world, and the saints, and illuminating the light of the knowledge of God in many who were far away from Him. This led to the repentance of many and the change of their lives. The second matter was the occurrence of several wonderful miracles of healing, many of which were proven scientifically and through collective testimonies. The papal office collected information on all of the above by members and committees of priests, who investigated the truth, witnessed this apparition themselves, and proved it in their reports to His Holiness, Pope the VI. The papal headquarters, in issuing this statement, affirms with full faith, great joy, and humble thanksgiving to the Almighty God that the Virgin Mary, the Mother of Light, has appeared successively in clear and consistent forms in many different nights, for varying periods, and at times for more than two hours, without interruptions. Beginning Tuesday evening, April 2, 1968 AD, which coincides with Baramhat 22, 1684 AM to date, at the Coptic Orthodox Church of the Virgin Mary on Toman Bay Street at Zaytun District and Al Mataraya Road in Cairo. This is the historically proven road that the Holy Family passed through during their trips in Egypt. May God make this blessing a symbol of peace for the world and prosperity to our dear homeland and our blessed people to whom the prophecy proceeded and said, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Saturday, May 4th, 1968 AD, Barabuda 26, 1684 AM. The Papal Headquarters in Cairo. So the apparitions that occurred between April
1: 2nd and May 4th received official approval by the Coptic Patriarchate. Now, you may be wondering what the reaction of the Catholic Church was. Since the apparition was happening at a Coptic parish, it really wasn't the place of the Catholic Church to make an official pronouncement. But the local head of the Coptic Catholic Church, Cardinal Stephanos I, had an informal investigation conducted, and based on this investigation, he concurred with the Coptic Patriarchate. Cardinal Stephanos stated,
0: It is no doubt a real appearance confirmed by many Coptic Catholic members, of the highest integrity and reliability. They saw the Blessed Virgin's apparition and gave me complete details and descriptions of the appearances of the Blessed Apparitions on the dome of the Zaytun Church. Sister Paula de Muffalo, a Roman Catholic nun well known for her accuracy and preciseness, assured me of the certainty of the Virgin's appearance on the dome of the Zaytun Church. Sister Paula was shivering and trembling. She says that she was not the only observer but she was among thousands of observers who all saw the apparition. This unique miracle embodies a benevolent message which will make the Zaytun Church a center of pilgrimage.
1: Of course, this was not an official ruling since the apparition was taking place in a Coptic parish, but it did represent Cardinal Stephanos' informed personal opinion. In his book, Zaytun, 1968-1971, to
0: Francis Johnston writes, As would be expected, there was no official pronouncement on the visions from Rome, though Pope Paul VI sent two investigators to Zaytun who saw the apparition with their own eyes. Reported in al aram 6 May 1968, there was no obligation on the part of the Holy See to pass judgment on an event which occurred in a Coptic Orthodox environment. Similarly, the Copts felt it unnecessary to pronounce on the visions of the Blessed Virgin at Fatima in 1917. In a letter to the author, Father Jerome Palmer, explained that Rome might only undertake its own investigation of the visions after corporate unity with the Coptic Orthodox Church has been attained. So
1: the apparitions, at least of the first month, had now been approved by the Coptic Patriarchate, and the Catholic Patriarchate concurred in an unofficial decision. The apparitions would continue with significant frequency throughout the rest of 1968, and with lesser frequency in 1969 and 1971. Needless to say, because of all the attention they attracted, many people moved to Zaytun, and they ended up having so many Christians living there and wanting to come to Mass there that they had to build a new cathedral to accommodate them. And the new cathedral is huge. It's massive next to the church. President Gamal Nasser of Egypt reportedly gave permission for the public transportation bus garage to be torn down to make room for it. And the Christians of Egypt continue to honor Our Lady of
0: Zaytoun to this day. So we will next turn to theories and our faith and reason perspective. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Scott S., Danielle H., Morgan N., Jacob K., and Richard D. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest, and you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com and by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at gradygroupinc.com. So Jimmy, what theories are there about Our Lady of Zaytun? To investigate the apparitions, we need to consider three types
1: of theories that could be responsible for them. First, there are naturalistic theories, things that would account for them that would be purely conventional. Second, there, they could have a paranormal explanation, something that isn't conventional but also wouldn't be a genuine manifestation of the Virgin Mary. And then finally, third, they could have a supernatural explanation.
0: Before we start analyzing the different theories from the reason perspective, let's talk about the evidence we have to work with. There are a lot of photos from Zaytun. What should we make of them? Unfortunately, I don't think we can put a
1: great deal of weight on the photographs. Uh, In some cases, we don't know who took them, which means that they could be fake. Uh, We know that vendors were selling photographs to the spectators and vendors can't be assumed to be above faking photographs to make a buck. In other cases, we do know who took the photos, but unfortunately they've been retouched, uh, particularly to make the edges of the images stand out more. The sky has frequently been blacked out to make it darker so that you can see the luminous shapes better. That's why the shapes have such sharp edges in the photos. In some cases, the retouching has extended to sketching over the figure of the Virgin Mary to make her image clearer. For example, we know of one image that was retouched in this way by Dr. Labib shanuda who did the additional sketching from his memory of seeing the apparition. Fortunately, in this case, we also have the original, unretouched image, which is significantly blurrier. In any event, as a result of these factors, I don't think we can put much evidential weight on the details of these photographs, though the ones that have known sources, even if they've been retouched, uh, together with the eyewitness accounts really do reveal that there were genuine light phenomena taking place at the church. What about other evidence that we have? Of course, we have numerous eyewitness statements, some of which we've heard, and some of which we'll quote as we go forward. I particularly like quoting official documents whenever possible, and one of these was prepared by Pope Cyrilus's commission of hegemens. Uh, it was a summary letter that dealt with both the experiences of the public transportation workers who were Muslim and with their own experiences, the hegumens when they visited the site. This letter hasn't generally been public from my reading of the sources, but it is found in the Coptic Patriarchate's book for the fiftieth anniversary of the apparitions, and it's an official document summarizing some of the evidence they gathered. so we will read it here in full
0: to His Holiness Pope Carillus the Sixth, Pope of Alexandria, and Patriarch of the See of St. Mark, with subordination to your apostolic seat. We kiss your pure hands and ask for your righteous prayers. Your faithful sons, Hegumen Father Gergis Mata, Hegumen Father Johanna Abdelmasi, and Hegumen Father Benjamin Kamel are honored to present this report on the apparition of the Virgin Saint Mary in her church located at Zaytun area. We were glad that your holiness has chosen us to visit the Church of the Virgin Mary at Zaytun. We went on Tuesday, April 23rd, 1968. When we first arrived, we wanted to interview those who saw the apparition of the Virgin Mary. We entered the garage opposite the church, but it was 9 p.m., so we called the workers of the garage, which belonged to the Public Transportation Authority. They assured us that they saw the Virgin themselves with their own eyes on the first night she was seen four weeks ago. Each one of them said that he was not the only one who saw her but that she was also seen by other co-workers at the same time, as well as by a large number of people by coincidence. They were passing by at that moment. This is the summary of the accounts of the workers of the garage of the Institution of Public Transportation. 1. Mr. Mamoun Afifi, the instructor for the drivers of public transportation, his national ID number is 9937, El Sayedi Province, said, I was still awake in the garage facing the church
1: at 8.30 a.m. on Tuesday, April 2nd, 1968, when I heard the parking guard standing at the door shouting loudly, Light on top of the dome! So I went out quickly and saw with my own eyes a lady moving over the dome and radiating an unusual light which lit the darkness of the area around the dome. So I looked harder, and my eyes were fixed on her, and I saw that she was the virgin, and I saw her walk over the smooth dome, and her body was a flame of light, and she walked calmly. I could not hold myself from shouting, God has
0: purified and chosen you from among all the women of the world. 2. As for the guard named Mr. Abdel Aziz, working in the garage of the Public Transportation Authority, He also said that as soon as he saw the Virgin, he saw her as a body of light over the dome. He started to shout, Light
1: over the dome! And I called to Hussein Awad, who hurried along with the other workers and saw the Virgin moving over the dome. I said, They were forbidden this year from visiting the Virgin in Jerusalem, so she came to visit them herself.
0: Mr. Hussein Awad, a blacksmith in the garage of the Public Transportation Authority, National ID number 33289, El Giza, Province. commented, I saw the Virgin over the dome of the church as a body of
1: radiant light, lighting the place like the sun. The Virgin was holding what looked like a branch of an olive tree and began to move. The light was shining from her body to all surrounding areas. The light then began to form a circle with the Virgin in its center. This scene I have never seen before.
0: Mr. Yakut Ali, the worker at the garage of the Public Transportation Authority, described how the Virgin walked over the dome. He said, It was a flowing,
1: brightly illuminated body in space. As soon as her feet touched the surface of the dome, they moved quietly, surrounded by a halo of reverence and holiness. Those who saw her were standing in awe and were taken by the
0: magnificent view until this scene disappeared inside the dome. Your Holiness the Pope, these are the words of the employees of the General Transportation Company. We wanted to make sure ourselves, so we went on many occasions. One night we witnessed the Lady, the Virgin, appearing first with a celestial spherical light with the Virgin inside it. She then appeared with her whole body, moved over the dome, prostrated herself towards the cross, and blessed the joyful crowds who were shouting with their supplications. On another night we saw bright silver shining doves flying directly from the dome to the sky. We glorified God who allowed us, the earthly, to see the glory of the heavenly. All this is due to your holiness's pure prayers and powerful supplications for your people. We ask God to perpetuate your life as an asset and pride to the church and to unite the orthodox faith at your hands. Please accept our submission to your apostolic seat and may he perpetuate for us and the people of the church your Archpriesthood, April 30th, 1968 A.D., Baramuda 22, 1684 A.M.
1: So the Hegemans confirmed the testimony of the public transportation workers, even though they had initially thought that the woman they saw might be a normal person about to commit suicide, they ended up concluding that it was the Virgin Mary. The hegumens also visited the site themselves, and they reported seeing the apparitions with their own
0: eyes. What can we say about Our Lady of Zaytun from the reason perspective? What kind of naturalistic explanations for the apparitions would there be? The two principal theories that we need to examine are hoax and misidentification.
1: That is, whether someone could have pulled this off as an elaborate hoax, and whether it could have been an innocent misidentification of a purely
0: natural phenomenon. Let's talk about the hoax theory. If you were going to argue that it was a hoax, What would you point to? In the 19th century,
1: there were a large number of what are known today as physical mediums, and a large number of them are known to have been hoaxers. Physical mediums claim to manifest the presence of ghosts through physical phenomena, such as moving objects, playing musical instruments, and materializing glowing objects. We talked about physical mediums some in episode 200 on The Ghost Bride. Many of these mediums were exposed by the British and American Societies for Psychical Research, and they found that they were using magicians' tricks. They performed in darkness to make it harder to see what they were doing. In fact, that's where the whole idea of doing seances and ghost hunts in the dark came from. Real parapsychologists don't want to work in the dark because it cuts down on your ability to see things. And physical mediums would use chemicals, often containing element 15 or phosphorus, to make objects that they pretended to materialize glow, because white phosphorus glows in contact with the oxygen in the atmosphere. So one theory to consider is whether someone could have pulled off an elaborate hoax, using phosphorus or another chemical to make a woman appear to glow, and doves appear to glow, and other light phenomena. The stars or sparkles that people reported seeing similarly could have been caused by pyrotechnic means or fireworks. And the clouds and incense that people reported could have also been caused by conventional means. So it would seem to be possible to generate a lot of the things that people reported seeing through natural chemical
0: means. Then let's look at the other side of the argument. Are there factors that weigh against it being a hoax?
1: We won't go through every conceivable objection that I can think of, but here are a number of them. First, in order to pull off a hoax like this, the perpetrators would have to be people inside the parish. A lot of the phenomena originated from the roof of the parish, so they would need roof access. But it doesn't appear that the priest was in on it since he was at home and had to be summoned when the first apparition took place. It could have been other people in the parish, but the windows of the dome are sealed shut and do not open, so you couldn't use them to climb out of or release birds through them. Also, the dome is dozens of feet up in the air, and there's no real way to climb up to it without scaffolding. I'm sure there are ways to get onto the roof, but that wouldn't explain everything that people reported seeing. In the first place, the lights they reported seeing were way brighter than what you'd get from chemical luminescence. That tends to produce soft glows, but people sometimes reported seeing bright lights. And to produce those, you'd likely need electrical equipment that you wouldn't be able to hide. People would see spotlights coming from the church or aimed at the church. Uh, Spotlights would cut through the haze in the air and betray their presence. Also, the figure of the woman was reported to descend from the roof to the garden below the church, and she was reported to float down, not to plummet like a woman leaping off the roof. Further, she sometimes was reported to float up into the air, and there's no way for a human to do that without a jetpack, which they didn't have in 1968, or without a winch, which would have been seen. Then there are the doves, which people said were not only larger than normal doves, but which numerous witnesses said flew without flapping their wings, so you couldn't just coat dusts in phosphorus and release them. People also said that they sometimes saw the doves and the woman simply fade out, which is not what would happen if they were covered in a glowing chemical. That would fade out slowly over a long period of time, not suddenly. And people reported that the woman was bright enough that you couldn't always make out her shape. You'll recall uh, Cynthia Nelson's testimony that she could see the outline of the woman if she thought about it, but if she told herself it was an illusion, she lost the outline of the woman. That's not something that you would expect to happen if a woman were simply covered in a light producing chemical, or if you had a super bright light shining on her. Further, these apparitions went on for more than three years. There were more than 90 of them, and nobody ever caught the hoaxers. That's very improbable. If I were going to hoax an apparition, I'd do it once or maybe a few times. But doing it more than 90 times, often with thousands of pairs of eyeballs watching, I wouldn't do that. The risk of getting caught would be too high. Yet nobody ever caught the hoaxers. Nobody ever found a smoke machine. Nobody ever found spotlights. Nobody ever found a chemically laced dove, and some of them would have landed nearby. And nobody ever found a supply of light-producing chemicals. Given the complexity and magnitude of everything that happened, there's significant evidence against the Hoax hypothesis. There's also another reason, which also strikes against the
0: misidentification hypothesis, but I'll hold that one back for now then let's talk about the misidentification hypothesis. What could be said in favor of this one?
1: A known phenomenon in human psychology is pareidolia, which is the tendency to impose a meaningful pattern on a nebulous stimulus. And this is known to happen in connection with religious imagery. That's why back in 1994, a woman named Diane Dicer was cooking a grilled cheese sandwich. And when she looked at it, She thought that the char pattern on the toast looked like the face of the Virgin Mary. It became an international sensation in the news and the sandwich eventually sold for $28,000, which would be worth $56,000 today after all the inflation the government has caused. In the case of Zaytun, we have some witnesses saying they could see the Virgin Mary's features very clearly, including her eyes, nose, and teeth. But we also have other witnesses, like Cynthia Nelson, who said she could see the Virgin Mary's outline if she looked at the image the right way, but if she looked at it another way, the human outline would disappear. That's also reported in the cases of other apparitions, both in parapsychology and in the religious world. In parapsychological apparitions, some people report seeing a ghost clear as day, and they can even mistake it for a living human being while other witnesses who are present see something, but they don't see it clearly. Similarly, in the Bible, there are apparitions where some people see or hear something clearly, like when God speaks to Jesus in John chapter 12, and some of those who are present hear what God says clearly, but others think they've just heard thunder. Or, when Jesus converts St. Paul in Acts 9, St. Paul hears what Jesus says clearly, but the men who were with him couldn't make out what the voice was saying. So, it's not uncommon in apparitions for some people to perceive them clearly, while others who are present don't perceive them clearly. But, as part of the investigative stage, we still need to ask whether pareidolia could be involved in this case. Could there have been light sources that people mentally imposed the image of the Virgin Mary on, like in the cheese sandwich example? and thus it was a purely natural
0: phenomenon. That would still require that there be a light source for people to see as the Virgin Mary or as doves or whatever. Are there any natural light sources that it could have been? People on the ground actually
1: did us a big favor by eliminating the common ones. You'll recall that on the first night of the apparitions, the police chief thought that the light might have been coming from nearby streetlights, so he broke them and that eliminated the nearby streetlights as a cause. Then, a few days later, they shut down the power in the area to eliminate any other electrical light sources from the neighborhood. That might really annoy me if I lived in the neighborhood, but speaking as a paranormal investigator, I'm like, good job, excellent process of elimination. They also cut the trees to give people an unobstructed view of the light phenomenon uh, which would help eliminate distant reflections by letting you see what was going on clearly. Of course, someone could still have brought a generator or battery-powered spotlight to the scene, but spotlights would have been seen by the crowd, the haze in the air, and Cairo can be a pretty hazy city, um, especially back in the 1960s before modern emission reduction technology in cars. Um, the haze in the air would have made the beams visible, at least on some of the nights during the more than ninety appearances, and especially when those clouds that smelled like incense were present. So the conventional natural light sources that you'd think of seem to be
0: eliminated. Are there any unconventional but natural light sources that have been proposed? There is one. Earthquake lights.
1: Earthquake lights are reported to be lights that appear in the air in association with earthquakes. We know that certain rocks under stress can generate electrical charges. The theory is that when these rocks are under tectonic stress, you know, seismic stress, um, they can cause lights to appear above the surface. And in 1989, John Durr and Michael Persinger published an article in which they proposed that the lights seen at Zaytoun were caused in part by tectonic strain. They claimed in their article to find associations between when the apparitions occurred and seismic activity about 400 kilometers or 250 miles to the south of Ze- to the southeast of Zaytun. The association wasn't perfect, but they proposed that this activity was at least partly responsible for the lights, along with other unknown factors. What do you make of that theory? Earthquake lights are controversial, and not everybody is convinced that they're real, or that they would happen in this kind of circumstance. It's also been pointed out that neither Durr nor Persinger were geologists. Instead, they were experts in psychology, and they published their paper in a psychology journal. Here's part of what skeptic Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast
6: had to say about this theory. There's one sciency-sounding explanation for the Zaytun lights that is mentioned in virtually every skeptical article on the subject. Earthquake lights. To grasp the plausibility or implausibility of earthquake lights as an explanation for Our Lady of Zaytun, you need only listen to my full Skeptoid episode on earthquake lights. Number 534. In it, you'll find that despite widespread popular belief in earthquake lights, there is neither evidence for their existence nor any plausible theory suggesting anything like them might exist. Without exception, every time the source of a so called earthquake light caught on video has been conclusively identified, it's been either lightning from a distant storm unrelated to the earthquake, the explosion of an electrical transformer, directly related to the earthquake, or a cloud illuminated by the sun that should never have been called an earthquake light in the first place. There has never been any need to go in search of an exotic explanation for a mysterious phenomenon that we have no reason to believe exists. But using them to explain Our Lady of Zaytun stretches this to an even further level of absurdity. Dare and Persinger, the original authors, correlated her appearance to seismic activity. 400 kilometers to the southeast. They were suggesting that these earthquakes caused lights that manifested neither as great flashes in the sky nor as sparks along the ground, but as a fully formed and recognizable human figure standing still or walking slowly on the rooftop of one particular church 400 kilometers to the northwest for quiet hours at a time over a period of three years. No other such apparitions were reported in this alleged 400-kilometer radius at all over that same period of time. Why not? Because it's a terrible, terrible explanation, and it is wrong.
1: Unfortunately, Dunning does not have an explanation for what the lights were. He acknowledges that they existed, that there there really were strange light phenomena at Zaytun, but as a hardcore skeptic he attributes the apparitions to wishful misperception of the lights as the virgin mary he seems unable or unwilling to accept the possibility that the lights could have a non-natural
6: origin but he has no explanation for what the lights were he says we need no earthquake lights no miracles and no papal declarations to explain our lady of zeytun we need only a great collective desire and belief by a passionate populace, triggered by some unknown, inconsequential, various light sources that could have been anything. Dunning tries to sound persuasive, but could have been
1: anything is not a satisfactory explanation of my mind. Dunning seems boxed in by a naturalistic mindset that's unable to acknowledge anything non-natural, and that's not open-mindedness. But I do agree with him that the earthquake lights theory isn't a good explanation. Um, I'm more open to the question of whether earthquake lights might exist. I haven't researched that question in depth yet, but we may cover it on a future episode of the program. However, I find it very hard to suppose that earthquakes or seismic activity 250 miles away would cause human-shaped light sources to be seen at one specific church over a period of three years without other light phenomena being reported elsewhere. That seems very improbable. So, despite our differences, I agree with Dunning that the earthquake light's explanation for Zaytun is super speculative and very unlikely, so
0: not buying it. You said that there was one argument that you were going to hold back for the moment that dealt with both the hoax theory and the misperception theories. What was that? Miracles.
1: If the apparitions were a hoax, or if they were misperceptions of natural phenomena, they would not cause miraculous healings to happen. You'll recall that Farouk Muhammad Atwa, the transportation worker who pointed at the Virgin Mary on the first night, had a gangrenous finger that he was scheduled to have amputated the next day. But when he went to the hospital, the finger was found healthy and he got to keep it. Well, that was far from the only medically unexplainable healing connected with the apparitions. For example, to name just one source, the 50th anniversary book produced by the Coptic Patriarchate, it contains multiple miracle reports.
0: This is one of them. Mr. Riyad Nagib Ezer, Bachelor of Commerce, University of Alexandria, said, I developed a retinal detachment due to rupture of the retinal vein in my right eye. The internal hemorrhage continued for 21 days, followed by a clot in front of the retina. A group of ophthalmologists announced that it had no treatment, no cure in Egypt or abroad. This shocked me, but I believed in God's mercy, especially when I heard what was published in the newspaper Watani about the apparitions of the Blessed Holy Virgin Saint Mary to millions at Zaytun Church named after her. On the morning of Sunday, april twenty one, day of the resurrection feast, I traveled to Cairo, accompanied by my mother and my friend, Fikri El Said El Shawawi. Together we went to the church, prayed, and asked others to pray on my behalf. I spent the night there, yet she didn't appear, and on the evening of the next day, Easter Monday, suddenly the Virgin appeared and the crowd started cheering joyfully. Without knowing, I closed my left eye with my hand and lifted up my eyes to the sky and screamed, praying, If medicine has failed, the Lord will not fail. Then the greatest surprise of my life occurred. I saw the Virgin St. Mary appearing as we know her, glowing with a light brighter than I had ever seen before with white doves circling around her. I saw all of this with my blind right eye then she disappeared. Then I looked at my mother and my friend Fikri and screamed, I see with my right eye. People started gathering around me, and they carried me on their shoulders as I continued screaming, I am healed. A miracle has happened to me.
1: Here, Bishop Marcos reports a healing that
4: he witnessed. We had a man who was very crippled. His hands were paralyzed and his back was bent, and he could barely speak. At approximately seven o'clock in the evening, I saw him begin to move his hands and then his fingers, and then the rest of his body. Before long, he threw his canes from his hands and began to run around the church, blessing God, because now he was healed. And here Bishop Gregorius
1: reports one that occurred to a Muslim woman who later came to him.
4: With a stick in her hand, she said... I am bringing this stick with me, not because I need it anymore, but to convince you that I was paralyzed, and I was depending on this stick, and now I don't need
3: it. And Father Johanna similarly reports... Three months after the apparition, other servants and myself witnessed a miracle while we were standing at the north yard of the church. We saw a blind and paralyzed lady entering the church on a wheelchair. She came to the church following the Virgin Mary's promise, who visited her at night saying, Visit my church at Zetun, and you will be cured. She came to the church following the Virgin Mary's promise, who visited her at night saying, Visit my church at Zetun, and you will be cured. A strong light radiated from the northeastern dome when the lady stepped into the church. We then saw her standing and moving towards the church, leaving the wheelchair behind in a stream of joy and praise.
1: These are just a few miracle reports among many others, and it wasn't just sick people who reported the healings. Doctors who had examined the sick also confirmed the miracles. Some of the doctors were even skeptics. For example, Cynthia Nelson reported,
2: There are those for whom the apparition does not make sense, and for whom an admission of its validity would threaten their taken-for-granted world. One prominent Cairo surgeon expressed this existential dilemma. In the following narrative,
0: a patient of mine upon whom I had operated two years ago for cancer returned to my office three weeks ago for a checkup. Upon examination, I discovered that the man had another tumor. I actually felt the tumor during the internal examination and removed a piece of tissue for biopsy. When the test showed it was malignant, I recommended an immediate operation, but the man refused, saying he did not have enough money and left the office. Two weeks later, he returned and asked for another examination. To my astonishment, I could not find the tumor, but only some white scar tissue. The man told me he had gone to Zaytun and prayed to the Virgin for help. I did not believe in such miracles, but I cannot explain the disappearance of the tumor, and it is driving me mad. So between the problems with the hoax theory, the
1: problem with the misperception theory, and what the light source would have been, and the documented miracle accounts, I think the evidence points away from there being a natural explanation for the apparitions.
0: So just because there isn't a natural explanation for an event doesn't mean that there must be a religious explanation. There are reports of paranormal phenomena of various kinds. Have any paranormal explanations of the apparitions been proposed? The only one I'm
1: familiar with is one favored by Eric Willette on his parasociology blog. He agrees that the naturalistic explanations uh, for the apparitions fail, but he also refuses to adopt the religious explanation on what seems to be essentially ideological grounds. This is something I've seen with various researchers in parapsychology. They point out that ideology keeps naturalists from embracing anything other than a naturalistic explanation, allegedly on the grounds of needing to do science. But then they themselves refuse to consider a religious explanation, also allegedly because they need to do science. This doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't themselves religious, but it does mean that they won't consider religious explanations when they're trying
0: to act in a scientific mode. In Willet's case, he says, To stick to a purely geological explanation, one would need to invoke a long list of geological coincidences never seen before and dismiss condescendingly all the witnesses as unreliable. This is an unreasonable perspective that is based on a belief that a purely naturalistic explanation somehow exists but cannot be proven. The religious explanation is no different from the geological one, as it is based on a theological corpus from which a belief in Marian apparitions can be supported but not proven. It is a matter of belief. He then proposes his own theory and concludes This explanation is neither religious nor naturalistic, and yet does not require a belief system. Which is just mistaken.
1: Everybody has a belief system, and every theory is undergirded by a system of beliefs, including the paranormal beliefs that undergird Willette's own proposal. So what does he think happened? To explain Zaytun, Willette uses a model that was originally developed to explain UFOs as paranormal phenomena, but he thinks it also applies here. He believes that the geophysical factors cited by Durr and Persinger played some role in helping Zaytun to happen but as a necessary condition rather than a sufficient condition. He doesn't think that earthquake lights would have appeared the way they did at the church. Instead, he thinks that the geophysical conditions helped set the stage, and then the phenomena themselves were paranormally produced by a large sociological effect. In short, he thinks that the light phenomena were produced by what's known as Recurrent Spontaneous Psychokinesis, or RSPK. If that sounds familiar, it's because we've talked about it before, such as in episode 159 on poltergeists. The idea is that, without meaning to, people who are under stress sometimes subconsciously manifest psychokinesis, or PK, and cause objects to move. This is thought to be responsible for much of the poltergeist phenomena that gets reported. In this case, Willette proposes that the PK manifested in the form of light phenomena, and it was brought about because of the stress the Egyptian people in the area were under. Because of all the stress, he thinks that a bunch of people began spontaneously manifesting PK that took the form of light phenomena, providing them with comforting apparitions of the Virgin Mary.
0: What does he think was the cause of the stress? We've already made reference to what happened in the Six Day War. Does he think that was the source of the stress? Uh, Somewhat surprisingly, he
1: points to something else. Uh, The Six Day War had taken place a year earlier in 1967, and Willette suggests that the stress was from something different. He notes that later in April of 1968, the Egyptian government freed over 1,000 radical Islamists from prison. These were members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they included. Ayman al-Zawahiri, who later became a key leader in al-Qaeda. Willette proposes that there were people who either precognitively sensed the coming release of the prisoners or who knew about it in advance, and that this caused them so much stress that it started the apparitions as a kind of collective, large-scale manifestation of PK.
0: What do you think of Willette's theory? Well,
1: there are reports of collective parapsychological experiences where one person starts manifesting a psychic ability and then other people start manifesting it too, either through telepathic influence or through normal influence. You know, for example, displaying PK at a spoon-bending party. One person spoon-bends and then all kinds of other people start having spoons bend. So it's not unheard of that there would be a collective psychic experience. You could then propose that the healings that took place were examples of parapsychological healing rather than supernatural healing. But psychokinesis does not normally manifest in the form of light phenomena. It characteristically manifests as moving objects, not bending or generating light. In Alan Gould and A.D. Cornell's book Poltergeists, they did a statistical study Of the phenomena that are reported in poltergeist cases. And out of 500 cases that they logged, luminous effects were reported in only 10% of them. And those were coupled with other effects like spontaneously moving objects. So it would be very unusual to have a poltergeist case manifesting so heavily in the form of light effects without the other effects normally present in poltergeist cases. So, Willette's theory sounds improbable to me. Also, the stuff about the Muslim Brotherhood prisoners being released is highly speculative, and Willette himself acknowledges that it's impossible to tell whether this was what triggered the proposed poltergeist agents in his theory. My more fundamental problem with the theory is that it's all just speculation. Willette doesn't present substantial evidence in its favor. As I mentioned, his primary reason for adopting it is ideological rather than evidential. He's just not prepared to consider a religious explanation or even a spirit related explanation, even if he doesn't think it's the Virgin Mary. You know, he could say, well, it's some spirit showed up and appeared to these people as an apparition, but he won't go there. And so his collective psychokinesis theory is the best one he can come up with. But I am of the view that phenomena should be interpreted at face value until such time as we get evidence that they should be interpreted in another way. Well, these phenomena presented themselves as the apparition of a spirit, and specifically of the Virgin Mary. So that's how they should be interpreted until we get good evidence to the contrary. And we don't have such evidence. The evidence points to there being apparitions of a spirit and specifically of the Virgin Mary.
0: Then let's talk about Our Lady of Zaytun from the faith perspective. Let's start with the fact that many of the witnesses were Muslim and believed it was the Virgin Mary. What do you make of that?
1: I'm not surprised. Uh, Although they don't regard Jesus as God, Muslims do regard him as a prophet of God and as the Messiah, and they regard his mother Mary as a very special woman in God's plan. They believe in the virgin birth and in Mary's perpetual virginity. They believe Mary was specially chosen by God. They believe that she is the greatest woman who ever lived. Uh, She's the only woman mentioned in the Quran. In fact, she's mentioned 70 times in the Quran, which is more than she's mentioned in the Bible, actually. And there's a whole surah or chapter in the Quran that's named after her. Furthermore, many Muslims have a devotion to Mary and visit sites connected with her, including Christian shrines to Mary. Muslim women in particular often seek Mary's assistance when they're seeking to become pregnant. So it doesn't surprise me that Muslims were favorably
0: disposed to the apparitions of Our Lady of Zaytun. What about the fact that Mary was appearing at a Coptic church? Some people might wonder if God would really give private revelations in a non-Catholic context.
1: All people are God's children, and He loves all of us. Because of His love, God can bless and speak to anyone. As Jesus says, God makes His Son rise on the evil and the good, and He certainly gives light to Christians when they seek it. We talked about that back in episode 44 on John Hendricks, the Tennessee prophet. Even though he was Protestant, we saw there were good reasons to think that God was genuinely giving John Hendricks private revelation. I therefore have no problem with the idea that God would give private revelations to other Christians, including especially allowing the Virgin Mary to appear to Christians like those in Egypt who love her so much. And the Christians in Egypt saw her appearance as a sign of peace and unity. Not only did the Coptic authorities officially approve the apparitions, and the Catholic patriarch also gave his personal approval, even Dr. Ibrahim Saeed said, The head of the Protestant church in Egypt supported the apparitions. So this was a pan-Christian event, a sign of peace and unity rather than an occasion for squabbling about whose understanding of the Christian faith is most correct. It's pan-Christian events like this that can help build bridges within the Christian community and spur
0: us towards unity. You classified the apparitions as private revelations, but Mary, unlike at Fatima and many other cases, was not reported giving anyone any messages, no secrets or prophecies. What do you make of that?
1: I'm also not surprised by that. Actually, the fact no messages are reported after so many appearances is another sign of confidence about what happened. If anyone tried to make anything up, it didn't get any traction, which shows that people were exercising discernment. While many Marian apparitions do contain verbal messages, not all of them do. For example, during the apparitions of Puma or Pontmain, France, in 1871, also known as Our Lady of Hope, the Virgin Mary didn't say anything out loud, although there was a written message. Neither did she say anything in the apparitions at Knock, Ireland, in 1879. Those apparitions were completely silent. So it's consistent with previous approved Marian apparitions that she may not say anything. Furthermore. You don't have to speak in order to send a message. Just showing up by itself sends a message. And in this case, the Virgin was reported to also nod and bless uh, the people with her hands, which communicates the message that God loves them and is blessing them.
0: What about the implications that some drew in relation to the defeat during the Six-Day War? Some saw Our Lady of Zaytun as communicating the message that God was on Egypt's side militarily, and they might defeat Israel in the future.
1: Well, I understand why some Egyptians thought that. It's natural to read signs of divine favor in terms of your own concerns, and in 1968, people were concerned about what had happened during the Six-Day War. However, despite the difficulties God's children have with each other, He loves all of us, and the dove is a prominent symbol of peace. So, I would be inclined to interpret the dove-like apparitions that appeared alongside Our Lady of Zaytun as symbols of peace, at least in part. Unfortunately, there was another war with Israel in 1973, but after that, the two nations began working towards peace. In 1978, the Camp David Accords were signed, Israel returned the entire Sinai Peninsula to Egypt and in 1979, the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty was signed. Egypt recognized Israel as a legitimate state, and full diplomatic relations, including an exchange of ambassadors, were established in 1980. Despite continuing tensions, the two countries are strategic partners, and the peace between them has held for 40 years. Is there anything else to say before we go? Just a few things in closing. Uh, First, here's a closing reflection by Father Johanna of St. Mary's Church.
3: She appeared after the defeat of the 1967 war because people were depressed during that time. The Virgin Mary appeared as if she were saying, I am always with you. I will never abandon you. I am happy because I am with you. I am going to shower you with blessings and grace. As a result, a lot of people repented and their faith became more steadfast. We should set our eyes upon God because we believe in heaven and eternal life. To heaven, our eyes are lifted. With longing, our hearts are filled. With your love, O Virgin, we are overwhelmed. For your intercession, we are seeking. We will always remember April 2nd, 1968. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
4: And here's what Bishop Marcos has to say. The vision of St. Mary is intended for all Egyptians, not just the Christians. She gives them peace. She gives them hope and the belief that tomorrow will be better than today.
1: I want to say a special thanks to Ibrahim Yusuf of Cairo, uh, both for his financial generosity to the program and for his help in researching this episode. He visited the church in Zeytun, and he provided me with research materials that are not available here in the United States. Uh, Just like Sherlock Holmes had his Baker Street Irregulars who helped him with his research, people who help Mysterious World research various topics are known as the Mysterious Irregulars. So thank you very much, Ibrahim, and welcome to the Mysterious Irregulars. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on Our Lady of Zaytun? I think Our Lady of Zaytun was a genuine apparition. Uh, The idea that it was a hoax is extremely improbable, given the circumstances and the more than 90 appearances. Uh, The common light sources that you would expect were eliminated and could not have been responsible. The earthquake light theory is bad. And in addition to numerous eyewitness testimonies, we have medically documented miracles. The mass psychokinesis theory that Eric Willette proposed is purely speculative and not supported by evidence. And so the apparitions should be taken as what they appear to be, genuine apparitions of the Virgin Mary. I thus concur with the official Coptic approval of them and the unofficial approvals by the Catholic and Protestant leaders in Egypt. So let's give thanks to God for the appearances of Our Lady of Zaytun and for his and her love for us in general.
0: And so, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We're going to have
1: links to Our Lady of Zaytun, uh, the Zaytun Memorial Foundation, the Coptic Orthodox Church, uh, Oriental Orthodox Churches, the Common Declaration of Pope Paul VI and Pope Shenouda III, information about the Coptic Calendar, a short Zaytun documentary, Cynthia Nelson's article on the Virgin of Zaytun, which unfortunately is behind a paywall, also information about earthquake lights, Dur and Persinger's article on the geophysical interpretation of Zaytun, which is also behind a paywall, uh, the Skeptoid Podcast, and two posts from Parasociology, uh, Eric Wallett's blog, as well as information on Mary and Islam.
0: Excellent. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about Our Lady of Zaytun? You can let us know by visiting SQPN.com or the Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World Facebook page sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515.
1: And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for their video and animation work on this episode. You can see what they do by going to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jimmy Akin. Uh, while you're there, please uh, like, comment, and subscribe. When you engage like that, it tells YouTube that you were engaged by the episode, and so other people might be as well, and it'll show more people the episode, so you can help the uh, the channel grow. By showing uh, By liking, commenting, and especially by subscribing, and when you do that, be sure to hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video out. Usually, I have at least two or three a week, and so at th- at this point, so um, do subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you actually get notified for what you've sub- subscribed to. I am trying to grow my channel, and I'd really appreciate it. Also, thank you to Melanie Bettinelli for her voice work in today's episode. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next time, we're going cryptid hunting again. This time, the hidden animal, or cryptid, that we're hunting is a strange creature described in medieval tales, including those about King Arthur. It's known as the Questing Beast.
0: Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from, to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 283. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs Matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com and by... Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. And by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at RosaryArmy.com and SchoolofMary.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for Exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com stargate.